The following message is from Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found at emmanuelcommunity.org. Friday was a special day for me because it was the first time since before the pandemic that I was able to get together with a couple of very dear friends of mine, uh, Will Kim and Charlie Chen. The reason why we got so close together is that back in 2016, the three of us did journey groups together. And I've shared about our friendship in past messages. Uh, For those of you who may not be familiar with the journey groups, is our program in which we invite people to get into triads and then for about a year or a year and a half exploring the spiritual disciplines together. And so for a year and a half back then, uh, Will, Charlie, and I met together every other week at Charlie's house. And we started our meetings at 7 o'clock with dinner. And then after dinner, we would go down to his basement And we would do the journey groups material, but then we always did more. And we would not finish until midnight or 1 a.m. every time. We we had six-hour meetings regularly like this. It was just uh, sometimes. It was just insane. Um, So this past Friday, we had this really heartfelt reunion together. We had breakfast at Charlie's house. And interestingly, the conversation sort of turned to how, um, in many ways, we've all sort of experienced success or achievement in a worldly point of view, uh, more so than we could have ever imagined. And yet, it hasn't resulted in this sense of greater fulfillment in our lives that we thought it would. Um, Four years ago, Will, who's on the left there, Uh, moved to Portland, actually to Beaverton, right next to Portland in Oregon, in order to fulfill his lifelong dream of working for Nike, okay? And on top of that, um, he actually got transferred to the Air Jordan team, which was a a big, he couldn't have even imagined ever being able to be on the Air Jordan team. And out there, he has amassed this impressive collection of shoes, okay, uh, that any sneakerhead would die for, all right? And yet, this is what Will confessed to us, was that having landed the dream job, it felt like initially like it was like winning the lottery. And having this collection of rare and coveted shoes that most people could only dream about. He says, it just hasn't brought the happiness that he thought it would. He said, I'm over it. I'm over it. And then Charlie, who's in the middle there, um, he then shared, uh, piggybacking on what Will shared, about he was just longingly remembering this CD collection of music that he had when he was younger. And he said he had about 200 CDs and he knew every one of these CDs intimately, every single song in that list and the album covers. And, you know, as you're listening to those CDs, you pull out the booklet and you read the liner notes. And he said that those were some of the most wonderful experiences of music that he can remember, just listening to his CD collection. 
And it was so precious to him because back then you had to pay $18 a CD, right? At Tower Records. I mean, it was expensive. And so especially when you're young, you calculate every CD that you're going to buy. Is it worth it? And he shared how today, as a middle-aged man, for $9 a month, he has a subscription to Apple Music. And he now has access to over 100 million songs through this service. And yet, he says, rather than making music better for him, it's cheapened the experience for him. And he says now, what he laments is that he cannot even get through a single song anymore before he gets bored with it. And he just keeps advancing and advancing to the next song and the next song in his playlist. And he misses those days when he used to have that CD collection. And he actually appreciated the music that he listened to. So we're sharing, I was thinking about this as well, was for years I've been struggling with something. And I've not really shared it much with others. Maybe one other person in this church. But I pay for really fast internet in my house. (laughs) And I am not getting the kind of image quality on my HDTVs that I know I should be getting. And you have no idea what I have been through to fix this problem. I have combed through every single setting on my television sets. I have run repeated speed tests on my internet connection. I have troubleshot my Wi-Fi mesh network array in my home. I have even upgraded my HDMI cables to the state-of-the-art HDMI cables. I have even called a Comcast technician into my house to check every aspect of my network. And he insists there is nothing wrong on his side and insists that it's not his problem. And he actually gave me a dirty look like, what's my problem? He actually looked at my TV picture and he goes, I don't see what you're complaining about. It looks fine, but I know it's not 4K. I know it isn't. <laughs> and somewhere in the midst of all of this troubleshooting uh, and the deep sense of dissatisfaction and frustration I was feeling over this picture quality issue, I felt really rebuked by God. And as if God were in his voice saying to me, why are you obsessing so much over this? Listen, whether it's our dream job or a prized collection of shoes or music or obsession with picture quality on our state-of-the-art devices, It's really sad, isn't it, that as followers of Jesus, these type of trivial things can consume us so deeply. What I want to say as I get into this message this morning is that I think these obsessions that seem very particular to life in America, they reveal how much we have drifted from God's priorities. How much we have lost a sense of mission that centers on the things that really matter deeply to the heart of God. It reminds me of the prophet Jonah who became more upset about the dead plant that used to give him shade 
than of the 120,000 citizens of Nineveh who are all dying in their sin. Jonah chapter 4, verse 8 to 9, when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I am so angry, I wish I were dead. Like Jonah, I think the truth is, we often care more about our comforts being met than about a world that is in desperate need of experiencing the love of God. Let's read the passage on which the sermon is based this morning in Matthew 19, verse 16 to 22. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? What do you, why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad. Because he had great wealth. You know, the traditional way that this passage is often taught kind of goes like this. Here is a man who approaches Jesus wanting to figure out how he could gain eternal life. And in his mind, he thinks he can earn it by doing good works. And so Jesus plays along with his view of salvation and he says to him, okay, you want eternal life? Then follow all of God's commands. And then you will be saved. And the man insists he has done everything that Jesus has rattled off in his list. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Uh, honor your mother and father. He says, all of these things I have done. And so then Jesus throws him the curveball. And just to prove that you cannot earn your salvation by good works, Jesus tells to him something that is impossible. And he says, sell everything you have, liquidate your assets, and give it all to the poor. And then come and follow me. And the argument goes in this traditional understanding of this passage that Jesus didn't seriously mean what he said. But he just gave this command to prove his point, that no one can actually do this. And in other words, no one can earn their salvation through good works. And the interpretation, this interpretation, seems to be supported by what follows later in an exchange that Jesus has with his disciples. In verses 25 to 26 of Matthew 19, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Now I want to begin by affirming 
that we in fact cannot earn eternal life through our good works or our obedience to God's commands. That's not how salvation works. It's not based on merit. As Jesus argues, salvation is possible only through God's empowerment. But here is where I differ from this traditional interpretation of this passage. I think at the same time that we can affirm that truth, that we don't earn our salvation, we can go too far by arguing that Jesus really didn't expect this man to live out this command in any meaningful way. That it was just basically a a thought experiment. I think the problem that is really pervasive in the church today is this sense that many Christians have that salvation, since it is by grace and not by works, is therefore reduced to simply believing in a set of truths about Jesus so that when we die, we can get to heaven. But Jesus' teaching on salvation is so much deeper than that. That is not what it means to be saved by grace. Is that all that is required is that we just believe the right things in our head. To Jesus, eternal life meant experiencing total transformation in the person that you once were to the person that he will make you to be. To actually be the righteous people of God that he calls us to be. Dallas Willard in The Spirit of the Disciplines writes, Faith today is treated as something that only should make us different, not that actually does or can make us different. In reality, we vainly struggle against the evils of this world, waiting to die and go to heaven. Somehow we've gotten the idea that the essence of faith is entirely a mental and inward thing. And that is never how Jesus presents eternal life. What Let me just ask you a question here that I think really gets at the point. What is Jesus referring to when he says all things are possible with God? What do you think he's referring to? He is not referring to a person dying and going to heaven. That could not possibly be what he's referring to here when he says all things are possible. If you allow that statement to be read in the context of the story, then it's pretty clear what Jesus is talking about. Look at what it says in verses 27 to 29. Peter answered, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, Truly, I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. You see, the all things are possible that Jesus is referring to is the ability to actually give up everything in this world in order to follow Jesus. That's what becomes a possibility when the power of God comes on us. I can let go the things that this world offers me and give up everything to follow Jesus. That is what Jesus says is possible only 
through the power of God in our lives. I think another truth here that the story reveals is you don't realize the power that your idols have on you until you're actually pressed to give them up, do you? Because we all act like they don't control us until Jesus actually says, give it up for me. And then I think the truth is we say, hold on a minute. There's got to be another solution to this, another way. Can I actually say this to you? It kind of sounds harsh, but I'm sorry. If the God that you worship asks you to give up nothing in the course of following him, you are not worshiping the God of the Bible. Has the faith that you embrace cost you anything in your life? Or do you worship a God that is at your beck and call, who is there to make your life only a little more pleasant than it would be without him? Is he only there to meet your needs? Or has there been a fundamental crossroads in your life where you have turned your back on the world and said, I have decided to follow Jesus? I want to be even more specific than this, though. Because I think the teaching here is even more specific than simply surrender all to follow Jesus. Because in the traditional view of this text, Jesus commanding this man to sell all his possessions and give it to the poor seems rather arbitrary. Because based on that interpretation, Jesus could have picked any impossible task that he wanted to prove his point. He could have told this guy, Swim across the Pacific Ocean or fly over the moon versus sell all your possessions and give it to the poor. But I don't think this command was random. I don't think Jesus just picked something arbitrary as an impossible task. This man was obsessed with trying to make sure that he had good standing with God so that he could know for certain where he his destiny was, his eternal destiny was. And in essence, what Jesus is saying in this encounter with this guy is, you're actually going about this all wrong. If your only intention is self-preservation and knowing what's going to happen at your death, you're asking the wrong question. The question I think that Jesus is telling this man that you ought to be asking is, what is this righteous and worthwhile life? that you are called to live if you follow me. And Jesus' answer to that question is that you ought to use your God-given resources to help those who are in need, that they too might know the love of God. This was the big gaping hole in this man's gospel, that he just didn't understand the teaching of Jesus. He didn't understand that the call of God on all of God's people was that whatever God has given to us, we ought to use in turn to bless others. Without that, we don't have a complete gospel understanding. Richard Stearns, who used to head a world vision 
in his book, The Hole in the Gospel, writes, The amazing news of the gospel is that men and women, through Christ's atoning death, can now be reconciled to God. But the good news Jesus proclaimed had a fullness beyond salvation and the forgiveness of sins. It also signified the coming of God's kingdom on earth. The kingdom of which Christ spoke was one in which the poor, the sick, the grieving, cripples, slaves, women, children, widows, orphans, lepers, and aliens, the least of these were to be lifted up and embraced by God. It was a world order in which justice was to become a reality, first in the hearts and minds of Jesus' followers, and then to the wider society through their influence. Jesus' disciples were taught to be the salt and light to the world. They were to be the yeast that leavens the whole loaf of bread. His was not intended to be a far-off and distant kingdom to be experienced only in the afterlife. No, Christ's proclamation of the kingdom of heaven was a call for a redeemed world order populated by a redeemed people now. In other words, the perfect kingdom of God that I just described was to begin on earth. That was the vision first proclaimed by Jesus. And it was good news for our world. That's why when Jesus began his earthly ministry, he quoted Isaiah and uttered these words in Luke 4, verse 18 to 19. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, what Jesus was telling this rich young ruler, as well as every one of these prospective disciples who would want to follow him, was to say this, that you ought to be the embodiment of the good news of the gospel. Through your acts of mercy and kindness that you offer in my name, you become the transforming agents in a world that is in desperate need of my love. That's why I think when Jesus says, sell your possessions and give it to the poor, he was not just throwing out a random test. He was saying, this is the essential hallmark of a follower of mine. This is your attitude toward your wealth. And this is your mindset of serving others. And this was not a new teaching that Jesus was bringing he was affirming the teaching that is found throughout the pages of the Old Testament. Isaiah 58, verse 5 through 7. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke? to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Micah chapter 6, verse 8, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. You can go back to the sermon archives, archives when I preached on the issue of biblical justice. You'll know that this idea of justice is this often captured in this idea of restorative justice, of trying to equalize the uneven playing field of our society and showing favor to those who are most marginalized and downcast and downtrodden in our world. If you read the parable of the sheep and the goats, 
that Jesus taught his disciples. Jesus describes the key distinction of his followers from the rest of the world. He says, this is how you will know who is my follower. Matthew 25, verse 34 to 36. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. That is how we tell the difference between someone in the world and someone who is a follower of Jesus Christ. You know, to illustrate how far the American church has veered from this vision of the kingdom and of discipleship that Jesus lays out in, these, in his teaching, uh, Stearns actually paraphrases this parable of the sheep and the goats, sort of seen through the lens of the American church. And he writes, For I was hungry while you had all you needed. I was thirsty, but you drank bottled water. I was a stranger, and you wanted me deported. I needed clothes, but you needed more clothes. I was sick, and you pointed out the behaviors that led to my sickness. I was in prison, and you said I was getting what I deserved. It's kind of indicting, isn't it, that in many ways the church in America seems to represent these values more than the teaching of Jesus that calls us to show compassion and mercy to those that seem least deserving of it in our society. I've been quoting Richard Stearns a number of times in this message, and I, I actually think every one of you ought to pick up his book, The Whole in Our Gospel, because it just tells a wonderful story, I think, of what God intended every believer to be. And I just want to close with sharing a little bit of his story as I close my message. Richard Stearns was actually the CEO of Lennox, tableware company, multi-million dollar company. Lived a very comfortable life. And he was invited to become the CEO of World Vision. And he he looked at it and go, no way, <laughs> not a chance. I mean, that would be an enormous demotion. And the thing about Richard Stearns is he did not grow up in the lap of privilege. He actually grew up poor. He knew what it was like to struggle financially. Not only that, but he was fired twice as CEO of other companies. And he spent months unemployed, months trying to figure out how to care for his family. So he knows the other side of the story. And how insecure life could be. And suddenly, World Vision comes knocking and says, we believe you are the one God has called to serve. As the and he says, well, I'm sorry, but I don't have that calling. And go look for someone else. And you got to read the book to realize how many times God had to knock down the guy's door before he finally came on his knees and said, I surrender. But finally that day came uh, when Richard Stearns decided to surrender to the will of God and accept this invitation to lead up World Vision. What was crazy, though, was right after he decided that, 
this guy came to his office from a British dinnerware company and said he was merging two companies and he wanted Stearns to be the CEO of his company and was going to give him 10% of the company, which would immediately have the valuation of 20 to $50 million. And he got invited to that the day he decided to accept World Vision's invitation. But by then, his will was determined, and he said no to it and joined World Vision. And he writes, within a couple of weeks, he found himself shivering in the rain in Uganda, Africa. <laughs> he said, this is what I was worried about. This is not the life I wanted for myself. <laughs> but why he was in Uganda was World Vision had started a camp to rescue the child soldiers of Joseph Kony, who was leading what was called the LRA, the Lord's Resistance Army. Kony claimed to be God himself, the son of God. And he kidnapped Ugandan boys and girls and forced them into slavery and forced them to be part of his army, requiring them to do horrendous, inhumane acts of violence in his name. And these kids became so damaged that their families would not even take them back. That these kids are monsters now. They're not human beings anymore. They're animals. And no one knew what to do with these rescued kids from the LRA. And so World Vision began to take them in and began to gather them together and tell them the good news of Jesus Christ and say, no matter what you have seen, what you have done with your own hands, no matter how many people you have killed, there is forgiveness to be found at the foot of the cross. And one by one, these children were rescued by the gospel. And Richard Stearns was there to witness these two boys being brought for the first time into this camp to experience what redemption in the kingdom of God looks like. And he writes this. The 40 other children of war, damaged souls all, surrounded them and began singing and clapping joyfully. These songs of praise to God, anthems of healing and forgiveness, were more beautiful than any choir of angels. The two boys that he's with, Michael and Joseph, were dumbstruck at this welcome. Coney told these boys, if you go to that camp, they will poison you and they will kill you. So that's why the boys were afraid to go to this camp. Michael and Joseph were dumbstruck at this welcome, so different from what they had expected. They began to see faces they knew, other kids who had escaped, who had, like them, also known the brutal hand of the LRA and had murdered at their command. Some spark of light began to return to their hollow eyes. Hesitant smiles slowly turned up the corners of their mouths as high fives and hugs were offered by this one and that. Soon, all 50 of us poured into the makeshift chapel of corrugated tin, rough wooden benches in the compound. A spontaneous worship service erupted as the songs of God's healing forgiveness and power were sung over and over again. Welcome home. Welcome home, Michael and Joseph. You are home now. 
the good news, the glorious, life-transforming gospel washed over Michael and Joseph. And in that moment, the unthinkable possibility of forgiveness broke over them like a new dawn. They could be forgiven, restored, made whole again. This was almost impossible to believe the glad tidings so overwhelmingly good. And as Stearns will record in the course of that book, considering that life of becoming a multimillionaire, selling the most ridiculously expensive dinnerware, and rescuing these souls in Africa and other places around the world, he says, how could I have possibly considered that other life when God gave me the privilege to live this one? You know, in John's presentation, he shared about this lady who insisted on giving us these four ears of corn. And you're kind of like, ah, yeah, whippy-doo, but you don't understand the sacrifice this lady made in giving it to us. And we were trying to push it back to her because they literally plant their field, which is like for some of them just a quarter acre. And that corn is their food for the entire year. And for many of them, it runs out months before the next harvest comes. And so a lot of them actually go hungry for months at the end of the year. And so this lady is taking four ears of corn, which is the meal for that day, and just insisting that we take it because this was the gratitude in her heart for the sheep that we've been given. And I want to tell you, that is what it means to participate with God in the joy of the harvest. And I hope that we could put that in the face of all of these trivial pursuits that we chase after in this life and realize that God has made us to live for so much more than these false dreams that this world offers us. Let's pray.